Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. And if you would like to uh, donate to the podcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com forward slash uncomfortable conversations. As always, at the beginning of every episode, I like to read the intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and lightwashing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other support and therapy as needed, to draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. On today's episode, I want to welcome our guest, whose name is Goldie. She found her first kundalini yoga class at 10 years old in 2001, and by the age of 12 was regularly attending kundalini yoga classes at her local community college in rural Utah. She then started going to 4 a.m. sadhana and started doing a 40-day practice. At the age of 17, she attended her first summer solstice and went every year for the next five-plus years and participated in the setup crew. Gradually, Goldie sank deeper into the lifestyle and was fully immersed in it until her mid, uh, early mid-20s. Eventually, she left Kundalini Yoga community after finding abuse allegations from previous cases online and practiced Sikhism only for a period of time before leaving it altogether. 
I want to welcome you to the podcast, Goldie. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to um, welcome you to the podcast. Um, you had reached out a while ago and shared a bit about your story. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me was the time frame. you know, 2001. And, you know, these stories always blow my mind a little because I feel like I'm reliving my childhood in the 80s, but it's a completely different decade. It's a completely different human. It's a completely different body. And yet the themes are so similar. And so that really struck me when you wrote, reached out. As I always do, I'd like to ask, why do you feel it's important to tell your story? I ask myself this a lot before coming onto your podcast. And I feel like I represent the group of people who may be questioning why their story is important because I'm not of the first gen, I'm not of the second gen. I didn't work for any of the companies. I didn't have any abuse directly at YB's hands. And yet I still have trauma from being in a cult for 10 years. Mm. Well said, very, very well said. This issue has been coming up quite a bit lately of people not knowing where to identify themselves. And because the rhetoric language is used so much around first gen or second gen, even among second gen, none of us really are categorized in, in the same category because there's so many various us within that categorization. But a person like you, like, who are you, right? You're someone who joined in. You don't fit. I didn't work for the orgs. I didn't do this. And I feel like what happens in a process where we're breaking silence in this capacity is we end up hierarching our, our own trauma, right? Like we're, well, mine's not bad because I didn't experience blah, blah, blah. And I honor you for just saying, hmm, no, I'm still experiencing trauma response. I spent 10 plus years in a cult and to name it, to say it, it's commendable, it's courageous, but it's also a real testament to um, you doing the work to, to, to start locating yourself and realizing that is true. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so, you know, listeners don't know what you had originally written me and, um, you know, your bio summed it up and still blows my mind as I'm reading just how young you started, <laughs> which which isn't surprising, to be honest, you know, because the amount of young people that are really struggling in the world outside of our uh, 3HO community, just in the world with, say, body autonomy, so, sense of self, esteem, you know, depression, just all the things and how kundalini yoga, you know, does market to that group. And so it's not surprising that you are young and it is simultaneously. Um, anyway, so take, tell us where you want to begin. How did you start? And yeah. Yeah, we'll start from the beginning. Um, I started at age 10 and what had happened was my cousin invited me to a kundalini yoga class at the community college. And as a child, I was always interested in different things. I was raised Catholic, but never vibed with any of it. So I was always searching for answers anywhere else, even as a young person. So I remember going to the class, the teacher, she was this older woman. And I remember her sitting directly in front of me, teaching me breath of fire and like her eyes piercing me and teaching me, you know, how to do it. It was, it was a little unnerving, <laughs> but I was, it piqued my interest. Um, and so by age 12, somehow I had enrolled in that community college class. And I don't remember if it was once or twice a week, um, but my parents would drop me off at the college and I would go to the class. It was a different teacher. Um, by then it was a man. And I remember 
he wanted me to be like the golden child of his class. Like I had really long hair then. So that was already in place. Like, oh, she already has a long hair. Don't cut your hair. Um, and he told, told the class about 4am sadhana and put a sign up sheet and I put my name on it cause I'm, I'm also competitive and I want to be the best at things. <laughs> so it brought that out like, Oh, 4am. Oh, that's a challenge. So I signed up and, um, he had the first one on Sunday. Lo and behold, I was the only person to show up. Um, and after that, you know, he's like, we can't, you can't, I can't just have a minor coming to my house at 4am to do yoga. We have to wait for more people, you know, um, good on him, by the way, good on him. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And, but eventually more people did start coming. Um, and my best friend down the street, she was older than me. She would drive, pick me up three 30, We'd go over, do sauna, do the two and a half hours of chance and meditation. And then I, I loved it because afterwards we would just sit, have snacks and tea and talk about quantum physics and mechanics and different ideas that my young mind was just absorbing, you know? Um, and again, I felt like and I say this with all respect to him, you know, but I feel like he was trying to make me into his like golden student. He told me about um, Midi Pity Academy and encouraged me to look into it and try to go to it um, if possible. And I remember looking up the website and wanting with everything in me to go. <laughs> and I tried to convince my parents, hey, send me to this school in India. And thank God they did it. You know, thank God they didn't. Um, but I still kept like diving as deep as I could. That's when I started um, my 40 day meditation. Uh, he taught me about that. So I just remember being in my room, sorry, sorry, you know, like <laughs> doing the whole thing and trying to be like very diligent in my practice. Yeah. 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 And um, you know, in the pause, let's just, let's just really let this land, right? The, 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 the golden student, right? The prodigal, the prodigal, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but you know, there is this prodigal yogi, right? It's, 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 these are the steps to becoming, right? And it's, it's, you know, and, and being young, right? You, you, you weren't yet being sold, go to solstice, but <laughs> He also had parameters because of your age, right? So the things you could do that you were gravitating towards. And again, I want to commend him for not allowing a minor to come to his house at 4 a.m. without others, which I, I don't feel like is, uh, it just goes to show some people have their heads on straight in some places. Mm -hmm. And yet what you're explaining is um, the little things, right? Starts with sadhana and then it's 40 day practices. And it's like ways that we can go deeper into our practice. And even suggesting many pity is kind of like let it, moving you along a continuum a bit. Right. Yeah. And he, at that time, wore a turban every day. And I remember for years being like, I'm never going to get to the point where I'm wearing a turban every day. I'm never going to get that far into it which I feel like the word never is a spell <laughs> because <laughs> usually those things happen. <laughs> um, usually those things happen. So 
this continued on for a couple years. Um, and so I'm at high school um, at this point. So I grew up in rural Utah and this is sometimes where I wrestle with the pros and cons of my experience. So here we have a huge opioid crisis as many small communities do. We're a small coal mining town. Um, there's not much to do here. And so kids here get into dangerous activities and drugs very early on. Um, so in high school, I did start abusing opioids and um, I was sniffing pills and Oxycontin. And my best friend who was the one picking me up for 4 a.m. sauna, I confided in her what I was doing. And, you know, as we're heading to, to sauna, she's like, you understand that that's pill form heroin, right? I'm like, no, what? And so at that point, I cut everything off. I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking weed, I stopped the pills, I, and I fully embraced at that point, even more so the yogic lifestyle and wanting to be like the pure one, wearing more white. And um, I kind of wrestle with that of, well, okay, if Kundalini Yoga hadn't come into my life, where would I be? You know, so there's some mixed feelings about it. Um, and at 17, I went to my first summer solstice. My best friend had to sign as my legal guardian since I was underage. <laughs> wow. And now, did your parents have to give consent for any of it or, or no? I'm not quite sure, but I know they did. I mean, I obviously had to ask their permission, tell them about it, um, sell them on it. You're like, let me go to <laughs> this summer camp. Yeah. We're meditating. It's right. going to be yeah. awesome. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. Um, and my my best friend, she had already been, so had told me about it. So I knew kind of, kind of what to expect. Um, and that first year, I actually did a service scholarship for um, the registration trailer. <laughs> and so I was sitting at the table when you first came in and I signed you up for Seba. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember how many people were absolutely puzzled as to why they had to sign up to something that they paid good money for and they are expected to do labor. Mm. And having to explain it's a it's a community, it's selflessly giving yourself it's part of kundalini yoga you know it's it enriches your experience and um very confused uh attendees coming in what's fascinating uh, to me is that wherever they had come from and whatever teacher they had learned they hadn't learned about seva yet you know that they didn't get sold on seva by the time they went to solstice to hear that you saying that blows my mind because anyway because right and they yeah they might not, <laughs> they might have had a teacher that wasn't so like hardcore in it you know but like they taught the yoga but maybe not like all the practices and beliefs and so they didn't well, know failed failed to let them know that if you attend this event that you have to pay for and tent at that it also is required to x because it's so built into a part of the attendance it's not even an option you get publicly right. shamed if you haven't signed up for a seva Right. I was going to ask you to do you know what the regular price is for solstice because I always did a scholarship. 
I'm per, I I don't because I haven't attended solstice for so long. So maybe somebody yeah. will comment on it. But I I know that it's at least five hundred dollars a ticket. Yeah, so that's on that's the minimum. You yeah, know? yeah. And with the scholarship, it was very reasonable. It was so doable, and that's why I did it every year. Um, so. By this point in my life, high school, I was going through all the regular uh, high school things, but um, I had already developed an eating disorder. I grew up as a dancer, so I've always seen myself in front of a mirror, comparing myself. Um, I was diagnosed as bulimic with anorexic tendencies. Mm. Um, So I think part of yogic lifestyles that maybe aren't talked about is how triggering it is for people who have or have experienced um, eating disorders and you're following restrictive diets or detoxes um, and, and using that as a way to stay skinny and claiming it as health. Mm. Um, and I remember it still, it, it perpetuated my symptoms. And one of the classes that I went to she taught a lot of recipes and my friend encouraged me to ask her, you know, how to heal my eating disorder. What do I do? So I approached her after the class, like scared me, skinny me. And I feel like not enough teachers or people say, Hey, I'm actually not qualified and I don't have the education or degree to give you this advice. And so what she did was give me a detox drink to have that was like juiced, very low calorie. Um, And I remember walking away like that's that's I'm only going to use that to fuel my eating disorder. (laughs) You thought that then? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, oh, I'll I'll take that information and weaponize it. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. I want to just pause here and just say how right on you really are here. You know, the, the amount of body shaming, fat shaming, and kind of um, pedestalizing the skinny, skinny white angel, angelic woman. um, And how within the teachings, you know, all this kind of health stuff is bolstered really to just fat shame, body shame, and, and, and create this really skinny archetype. And we're hearing the testimonies more and more, but to be a young person coming in it with mm-hmm. conscious awareness around eating and the amount of controlling behaviors around food that are wrapped in this conscious teaching, it's just, it's such an important point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I, I attended maybe five or six years. I was there. Um, when they had, they did it according to the elements. So there was like earth, wind, fire. Um, and every year an event happened that included the element. I don't know if you remember that, like the fire year, there was huge fire, air year. We had crazy storms. People's tents were literally up in the air. Um, water, it drowned out. But um I had taken on a name at this point. I don't remember my age or year. What I what I've known to and like and understand about my complex PTSD is I have a hard time with numbers and years. And honestly, before this podcast, a lot of this I just 
put aside and I don't think about it as, as much as possible. Um, and so I had taken on Sandesh, which means messenger of God. And I introduced myself and reintroduced myself to everybody in my local community as Sandesh. And really, yeah, I, I didn't care what people here thought. Um, and like I said before, I had said, I'll never wear a turban. I'll never wear a turban. But by 18, 19 years old, I started wearing a turban every day. Wow. Wow. So <laughs> anywhere you went, you were already wearing a turban. Yep. Anywhere. Like, imagine I'm from Utah. Utah. It's mostly Mormon culture. <laughs> Um, and I'm, you know, wearing a turban every single place that I go here. Wow. And, um, part of where I fit in though with Mormons is the modesty culture that's really pushed in Kundalini yoga. Like you have to be modest or like you're advertising yourself as a slut. (laughs) And you heard that directly. Right, right. And also I remember being taught to wear um, a, like a shawl or a scarf over my head and then draping it over my shoulder because what that does is separate my sexual energy from my higher energy and so that I wouldn't be in my sexual energy so much. <laughs> wow. I want to pause and be like, I'm not unfamiliar with knowing that level of shaming because I'm super familiar with it. I've carried it with me as a part of my whole level of esteem, trying to unwind it over the years. But to hear you say this and to hear this rhetoric that's played out, I mean, we're talking, this has got to be around 2000 and something, you know, it's 2010, 11, 12, 13. I mean, it's still present day folks, Mm -hmm. but listen to what she just said, you know, the reason to wear the scarf and to separate, you know, it's like that we shouldn't be in our sexual energy. Meanwhile, Kundalini yoga is highly sexual and diets are actually imbalancing biochemical system where there's high amounts of sexual energy that are not dispersed. Okay. Carry on. Absolutely. (laughs) And in that same so vein, be modest, you have to be modest to control all that energy or exactly, yourself. exactly. And in that same vein, I'm sure some people have already touched on it in previous podcasts, but the teaching that whoever you are intimate with, they stay in your auric field. So by this point, um, 18, 19, 20, I've already been in two abusive relationships and was still in one like 19 to 19, 20, 21, 21, 22. To hear that as a rape survivor, as an abuse survivor is totally terrifying. So my abusers are going to stay in this auric field and affect me for the rest of my life. And what does that mean when I, I want to take a new partner on like, what does that make me, you know, and like hearing those teachings and always kind of making a face at them, honestly, you know, I, I never, I could never fully accept that. And I remember even talking with women around me who are like, yeah, I like Kundalini yoga, 
However, when they spoke about that in the class, ew, what is that? Uh, archaic is, teaching. What is that archaic teaching? Mm. Right. Um, and it's, it's a form of, of shaming and it's a form of gaslighting that's so manipulative and coercive. And what I want to say about this, and, and I just want you to pause right in where you're at in your story, is that I've had this happen to me by people who've left 3HO decades ago and still use that as a spiritual principle to try to regulate my sexual activity or my sexual expression. And it, it's so convoluted and it's such a form of stealing our sense of agency and choice. Um, and it's extra convoluted when you are a sexual abuse survivor, because for me to choose to have however many lovers I want and to be shamed that these energies are going to stay in my aura. Well, how about when you're molested by your uncle or your father? You know, oh, okay. How about when you're raped by, you know, a spiritual leader? You know what I'm saying? So like these things actually become warped, fragmented parts of our sense of identity because we think they're spiritual law because this is how spiritual abuse commingles with sexual abuse. And it's it's such garbage. I just want you to hear this. Such garbage. Okay. There were there's ancient teachings of women fucking the war out of men. Let me just tell you, there were sex temples mm -hmm. in ancient lands that women fucked the war out of men. It is possible to alchemize energy in your body. So don't, don't have the nerve to use some sort of sexual, spiritual law around our aura as a way to control women's sexuality. Oh, that men's aura doesn't have that? And this whole idea that we're receiving energy into our bodies you know, the nature of our physiology supports that rhetoric, okay? Mm -hmm. And 3 Joe is not the only place you'll hear this rhetoric, by the way. You'll hear it in lots of other spiritual spaces that are supposedly talking about energy. But in general, it's a form of autonomy control, agency control, and, and sex control. And it's garbage is what it is. So yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you. But <laughs> I totally agree with you. Absolute garbage. Um, and... So having gone through what I had gone through already at a young age, um, attending summer solstice. So the next few years that followed, I was on setup crew and I'm having my, you know, these are my first experiences with white tantric yoga as well. And because now you're old enough. Right. right? <laughs> and, and Again, as an abuse survivor, I can see now how white tantric did more harm than good. Mm -hmm. um, having to pair with usually men that I didn't know, a lot of them were older and I can, I can definitely say that it, I can see where why these mannerisms, thoughts, ways of being, were passed down through the men. So I'm, you know, I'm 18 and here's this 26 year old Sikh man who is now hitting on me. Like, you know, being like, I, I could never as a 26 year old be with an 18 year old. And I'm not trying to speak ill on anybody's relationship, but for me, I see now like, no, like that was predatory. 
and having to, if people don't know, uh, white tantric yoga, you pair with a partner. It doesn't always have to be the opposite sex, um, but they're across from you. Everyone's in all white, white head coverings. You're in rows of two. And most of the meditations, you're staring right into their eyes for either 31 minutes or 62 minutes. And sometimes touching each other. And like sometimes to like put foreheads together yes. or fingers on each other yes. or lock hands. And I've yes. done gross ones where people were all sick and their hands were all sweaty and it was just, and right. they were totally predatory. They were, you know, sucking energy out of me and yes. you could feel it. Yes, you can absolutely feel it. And also a lot of those poses, your arms are in the air and each, each, each exercise is 31 or 62 minutes. You would never know how long the day would be. Sometimes it would be six hours. Sometimes it would be literally all day until nighttime. And the only thing at summer solstice is cold showers because that's part of the regimen. You only get cold showers. So you wouldn't want to shower a cold shower at nighttime only to wake up in the morning and do it all again, because you're doing three days of white tantric yoga. Um, Again, I'm a competitive person. <laughs> I want to be the best. My perfectionist side comes out. So I wouldn't even give myself the opportunity to not do the exercise. I would force myself, no, you're going to keep your arms up for this amount of time. And literally every single year, I only did the, um, there's a, uh, what's it called? The, the meditation after where you have your eyes closed and you're in a line and one person is leading you around the blind walk. I don't know what they call it. I only did it one year because every single year that I went by the end of the third day, I know now what the feeling was. I didn't know then I was so disassociated. I would just go lay in my tent, usually in the hot sun and just like pass out, take a nap. And I, I would immediately starting having nightmares of my abusers. Oh. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't have the terms and understanding then I feel as if social media has provided a platform for us to understand trauma and abuse and symptoms of it. Yes. Um, so much better now than what we had then. I, I had none of these words. No, I didn't know trauma bond, bond disassociation. I wasn't even thinking about PTSD, you know, States. right, right, right. I had no idea. And so what's taken me so long to get over is just like my anger at, like, I feel like I lost so much time that I could have actually been healing from my abuse instead of like, making it longer and prolonging it and then adding more trauma to it that I have to then unfold. Yeah. It's like the exponential process of that compounding, right? You think you were helping, but you were actually compressing it. And then it's like throwing gasoline onto a fire that's been compressed. Exactly. And and in the name of consciousness, in the name of healing, in the name of spirituality, and it's actually doing the exact opposite. It's creating re-traumatization and deeper states of disassociation, deeper states of mm -hmm. disconnection, and calling it something else, compassion, consciousness. Yes. 
elevation, whatever. Right. Which right. adds to the confusion and convolution and the loss of time. I just really want to acknowledge that, that a part of, you know, waking up to being in a cult is actually feeling the things we lost. And to actually start feeling the things we lost is a, is a later stage in, in this process of awakening in the sense that we can even begin to notice there are things that were other choices. Like, Yep. In in other states of ourselves, you, you couldn't even go there because all you can see is the benefit I got going back to like, well, if I didn't have Kundalini Yoga, maybe I would have gotten on opioids. It's so easy right. to do that flipperoo in the brain that doesn't let you actually feel the weight of the impact of the convolution that took place. Mm-hmm. Right. And I also want to speak of the duality of feelings inside of a cult, right? Like I obviously from the things I've experienced and having eating disorders, body uh, disorders, body dysmorphia, I had a, a low um, self-worth. However, <laughs> what was being taught inside of Kundalini Yoga is we are the chosen ones. We are the ones when 2012 comes, we are going to be the change makers. We're the elevated ones. We're the special ones. If you look around, it's mostly white people. <laughs> wearing white wearing white (laughs) like inflating our sense of self and and really only like adding fuel to white supremacy and appropriation and oh we're gonna be we're the white saviors of the world (laughs) white saviors of the world oh I could be feeling like I'm the I'm I am trash and I'm going to be a white savior to all these, these people who are desperately going to need me. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Like I feel like a tight ball inside and I have the special wisdom that can change humanity. Right, right. So here I am, I've taken on an exotic name. I, you know, my birth name's gone. I wear a turban, like I'm, I'm the one. No, I'm culturally appropriating. <laughs> Bottom line. Bottom line. Yes. So and, well said. So well said. And I also, I, I, I want to go back to my experience on setup crew as well. So as I mentioned before, the service scholarships were very reasonable. What I paid was very reasonable. The amount of work that the setup crew had to do was insane. Like literally from from sun up to sun down, physical labor all day. Um, There might be some background noise. I live right next to the train tracks. Um, And to me, at that time, I loved it because I, I liked being there before 2,000 people got on the land and totally trashed it. That was the other part of Setup Crew that, to me, started opening my eyes a little bit. So if you do Setup Crew, you stay after everyone leaves and you do cleanup. I was shocked to see how many conscious people just left it an absolute mess. And it was people from the city who would... They'd come in and they would buy all new camping gear. They would literally leave it there, set up cots in it. Like we would just divvy it up. Like you want a new tent? Okay, take a new tent. Like, and also 
as far as leaving the garbage there, I did want to speak of Peace Prayer Day as well, which felt really weird. Um, so what they would do was they would bring in Native people to um, the, what's it called? The, the walking circle spiral, the, the Peace Prayer Walk. Um, it's, it's, it's in a spiral. Yeah, it's like a labyrinth, no? Right, yes. And so yeah. they would bring in Native people to smudge everybody. They're playing drums. Like, oh, look at how diverse we are and the land that they saw YB coming to and, and, and had a vision of, which was total bullshit, as we know. Um, and you, people- you heard that story about the land, about the Hopi yeah. dream and stuff? Yeah. The, the, the tall, the tall man in white coming to the <laughs> land. Like, and it's how, when you hear it, you're like, oh, wow, Amazing. no, it's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. Again, we have found another way to colonize land <laughs> and make up history that doesn't exist. Yes. Um, so add, it. just put right. white all over it. And that we once again are a savior. Right. Exactly. And so as they're drumming and smudging, there's um, an altar in the middle where people would leave, you know, different things in the middle. Cleanup crew, we clean all that up. You left all, literally all this garbage, honestly, on the land and it all gets just thrown away. So your little coupons that you left in there and your sacred items, like you honestly just trash the land. <laughs> wow. Uh, and so that, that's when I started to be like, hmm, <laughs> what's are, going are, on? Is there real stewardship happening here? Is there real consciousness happening here? Right. Like to, you know, it's such an interesting point you're, you're making up. Because if, if you've been in the lifestyle normally and you just kind of scooch out of there, you're just thinking about taking care of your own well-being. But one that's actually thinking about the principles that are supposedly in the teachings there would be more stewardship with the land. There would be more awareness of how you leave something, how you treat other people in the midst of how you get what you want, just different mm-hmm. things that all these little interactions pulled apart, kind of mm-hmm. show like, where's the humanity? Where's the awareness? Where's the consciousness mm-hmm. in so many aspects? That, that's mm-hmm. being on the setup crew. I also just want to add that that is a lot of effort. You have to come days early. You have to stay days late. You have to work up and down in the setup. And then, and I can only imagine how much stuff people leave behind. I mean, that's just blowing my mind. It, it was honestly unimaginable. (laughs) And I think as a young person, what I would do is if I know somebody's role, say, I know you're a priest, I know you're a yoga teacher, I have a set idea of like the standards that you should hold for that. And I'm going to trust you that you will hold those standards. And I think that's what makes it hard to really pierce the veil and to see who somebody actually is and what they're doing and why when you find out they're abusing people, it's so shocking because you're like, no, you have this role and these are the rules, regulations and standards that you should be holding in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, so the denial comes very easily. So I, again, that's when I started to kind of like question what, what's going on here? Um, mm-hmm. And 
So I, I heard a little bit about, um, I believe his name is Gersant Singh, right? The one who he was speaking out early on against yep. um, YB. I remember exactly the way he was portrayed by the community. And he, he, he was a psycho. He was off the hinges, crazy, like, don't listen, you know, don't listen to him. And I remember looking at his website and the things he was saying, it honestly felt like looking at porn <laughs> because I was like, oh, I shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be looking at this, you know, like, wh- what does that make me if I'm looking, you know? Um, however- Which shows the amount of indoctrination that is that is programmed into us around looking at things that it means someone's speaking out. Like we were trained right. to not see those things. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Anything that's speaking out against the teachings, it's just- no, don't even, don't even look at it. But it was because of what he was saying that again, made me start questioning what's really going on here. Um, and pardon me. Um, I, I remember starting to feel, you know, it's kind of weird that there's a Kriya and a meditation for everything. And that, <laughs> and that my yoga teachers, can just be like, hmm, you know, it seems like you might need this meditation and, you know, them diagnosing me, me self-diagnosing myself and, oh, there's, there's just something for everything. Um, and the process that started to then get me out of Kundalini yoga. And again, at this point, I'm still in full turban. I'm not cutting my hair. Um, I was very much in it is I found a different meditation class where you literally just sat and like, listen to God. And to me, that was just the stark contrast of there's a meditation for everything. And we know what's best for you instead of like, maybe you don't know what's best for you. (laughs) And just like, let yourself be healed and in whatever way you need to. Um, So I was probably in my early 20s at this point. Um, I remember the last couple solstices I went to, I was just so, what's the opposite of enamored? (laughs) Uh, Apathetic? (laughs) Yeah, I, gosh, the thought, the thought of mung beans and rice, which by the way, I did 40 days of mung beans and rice in high school. (laughs) I've done so many of those voluntarily. I'm right there with you. You know, just the thought, I could barely shovel another spoonful of it in my mouth. The breakfast soup, I couldn't even like, look, I couldn't look at. Um, I I was pretty done with the teachers, the, the classes. I was only going to the gong meditations and tired of people talking to me about spirituality and just seeing all like the spiritual bypassing happening and starting to really recognize it for what it is. And part of, I know I'm kind of jumping now. I'm just remembering more. Part of what helped me with that actually is um, being friends with the second gen. And um, I remember one of the last uh, solstices I went to, um, my friends Avtar and Jasmeet, we were just sitting in kids camp, like eating the Oreos and them just being like, all oh, this is total bullshit. I'm like, wait a minute. Like 
you guys think this is bullshit? Like, wait a minute. That that blew my mind open because I always viewed second gen as being like these perfect, I mean, look at them coming in and performing Bhangra and they're like the best at everything. And, you know, like they, the standards for them were set really high to just be perfect in everything that they did as well. Um, and so hearing them speak about it also started to shatter my ideas around it. Mm. And I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. It's really powerful what you're saying, because, you know, I'm sure you could speak to this, but you know, the second gen are, are really kind of, um, pedestalized, but at our own expense, you know? And so mm. what I witnessed it, I didn't go to solstices in the latter years, but I, I, I did go to the European yoga festival and I became enamored at exactly what you're talking about, watching these second gen come and perform their Bhangra and then do their little midi pity performance. And it was basically a really amazing marketing program to sell the midi pity program. And yeah. it worked ladies and gentlemen, like hook, line, sinker. I was like, you know, telling people maybe they should send their kids to India and Historically, I don't think it was as great, but now it must be great because look at these amazing kids on here. And, you know, that didn't last long because I could feel this deep pain beneath some of these kids that when they got off the stage, you know, they they didn't smile or interact with many. They only interacted with each other. And so there were just certain signs and symptoms, but I was so far removed. I have no idea what's going on. But to hear second gen speak to kind of, nah, this is total bullshit. It's so powerful. It's so powerful and, and necessary. And and I want to say probably rare. I don't know for you to be sitting in that moment. It just sounds like it was, it was a part of your piercing the veil moment. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would say the final thing that really like broke through everything for me um, was one of the classes I attended. I think it's called the the triketrum meditation. Tantricum, where they're staring at YB's picture. Exactly. So that real predatory picture too. Yes, there's a picture of YB. He's supposedly in the most neutral, meditative, enlightened state you can be in. And you're supposed to stare into his eyes. So this was a class I I had attended at Solstice and I walked out of. And I was like, you know what? something funny might be going on here and it really took until that point because also what I haven't spoken on yet is my feelings for YB up until that point was totally loving and compassion and oh my god thank you so much for this man like the love that I felt for somebody that I hadn't met he had passed by that point um the adoration the level of adoration it sickens me now to even think of. Um, But I was totally under that control and that everything he said, listening to the lectures, like laughing at his jokes, like, oh, you know, and and his tougher moments, like, oh, well, you know, but I I love him. I'm going to take these words in and really process it. Um, So to then get to the point where, whoa, you want me to stare at a picture of him like, no, wait a minute, let me rethink everything here. Um, and so even then, again, I am in my early 
20s. Um, this is way before the book came out. This has to be 2012-ish, yeah, I would 13, say. 12, 13, uh, I did a simple Google search about like Yogi Bhajan allegations. And it was not hard then to find court documents of the previous allegations. And as a survivor of abuse, that was enough for me. I didn't need more evidence. I didn't need Pamela's book at that point. I didn't need testimonies. No, I believe survivors a thousand percent. I don't need you to, to just like justify yourself, defend yourself to me. No, I'm going to believe you. If you say one simple statement, he abused me. Yes. I believe you. And that was enough to get me out of the yoga. I went to my friends who were still doing it. Like, Hey (laughs) y'all we're in a cult. Hello. And I, I still love these people very much. And that's like, no, they'll hear this and be like, Oh, we know. But, (laughs) but, but when I, when I told them they were like, we know, but it's making us money. Damn. And I was very heartbroken at that response because it's like, you know, but you're still, you're still passing on this abuse to other people and something that has, you know, prolonged my healing and your healing for so long, but because you're making a buck off of it, you don't want to stop. Like, I, I don't, I'm not that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so extracting myself from it, I stopped the yoga. I remember in a meditation, um, you know, just being told like, hey, it's time to take your turban off. You know, for a while, I, I only practiced Sikhism. I kept the mantras for a while. Um, I had also been reciting like bunnies and Japji and all of that. I was still, you know, like figuring out like, what do I keep and kind of like cherry picking from it. Um, but I'm like, this religion isn't mine. <laughs> like, what and just taking it all off I remember not wearing my turban was a big deal I felt really exposed um cutting my hair after that was a big deal and I felt like I I cut it really short and I feel like I lost a lot of friends in the community after I did that I feel like I you know I was pushed out um and I, once Pamela's book came out, I saw, and and I know people are still wrestling with it. Like, is there anything I can keep from this? Well, the mantras I can keep and, you know, everybody gets to choose, but for me, I can't even, I can't hear it. Like sometimes we'll sing the long time sunshine to just laugh at ourselves and be like, holy shit. Like what the fuck? <laughs> what we're actual fuck. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like even hearing it, we're like, oh my God, you know, like, no, 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 no. Um, so at this point, I I can't do any of it. It's it's even taken me a long time to to get back to any type of of meditation or listening to spiritual talks. Yeah. I honestly, like I'm 31 now. And I just barely started listening to um, talks by a Shaolin monk because before it was just too traumatizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally, totally. 
just a couple of things I want to just highlight, you know, the tantricum picture, you know, where you're supposed to stare into this like horribly predatory picture of why be the predator, um, which is an early picture too, you know, it's like this really young one that everybody gets to fetish over in his young days. Um, and I remember in 2009 doing that, it, it, having that offered to us in teacher training and, you know, like at least three people were like, I am not looking at this mofo's picture. And Krishna was like, for those of you that don't want to look at his picture, you can just look at the candle. So oh. they, they set up a candle. And so some of us were like, yeah, like that. I was one of those. And we just looked at the candle. <laughs> so you just got to stay. Or the idea that she was getting at is like, what happens when you focus your eyes? So I was like, cool. We don't need to focus our eyes on that dude. And, mm -hmm. and. But the fact that it's built in, right? So in all the struggles of how do we unconflate predatory behavior from supposedly good practices, the real innate problem of that is they're quite infused in our physiology and in the memory of our own nervous systems. And of course, this is everybody's personal unwind, but I, I can't agree with you more. The, the importance, A, to be in touch with your own somatic experience and 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 filter through it kind of like one once ladle at a time, you know? Um, but also I have a very similar experience of just being guided to be like, yeah, you can't do that anymore. You got to completely stop. And I had years that I was quote guided to not practice, not teach. And at the time I didn't understand it because this is way pre 2020. It was like 2014, 15 or something. But I'm saying it because it's very informed in what you're sharing is that deprogramming is real and we can't actually find and feel ourselves until we actually create some distance. So it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that, you know, listening to spiritual talks won't, won't, will forever be triggering, right? It doesn't mean doing breath work will ever be triggering, but we have to really understand and trust the process of what it means to uncouple or unenmesh abuse from, from loving spaces or mm -hmm. spiritual abuse. And that's another highlighted point. You brought up two really important things throughout this talk so far. One goes back to your eating disorder and the talk of the woman and how often teachers are giving advice that are not rooted in training experience of anything other than their yogic understanding and maybe a nutrition course they took online, like bless your sweetheart, you know, and that's a problem. What's also a problem is that within the Kundalini Yoga teaching, we learn to say shit very confidently as if we're experts. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. That hit it exactly. And this is key because those of you that are carrying on to teach, you know, I feel like Goldie's speaking here is, is a real example of how you doing a well-meaning thing at a community college is actually a gateway to somebody else's really horrible abuse. And you carrying on teaching without YB's name, but still teaching all of the same garbage that's infused into other things that maybe aren't garbage, but you haven't paused long enough to actually feel and tell the difference and to look at the reality of your own life and how this has impacted other people based on your choices to just press ahead and make your money or be that teacher helping everybody you know whatever the identity is that you're attached to it's linked to predatory abuse so until you pause long enough to know that that's the case 
hey, God bless you, teach whatever you want, you know, but cult formula carries on through you energetically. So just like mantras carry an energetic, you know, imprint, you're carrying on a predatory energetic imprint through that infusion. And it's through our expertness. We do this by claiming expertness. YB pretended to be an expert at a lot of things. What he was, was an expert manipulator and an expert theft, theft uh, thief, you know, stealing real spiritual principles and coagulating it into a hole and giving us this false, misappropriated, whitewashed identity that doesn't give honor to the sources of these truths. And then we carry that on in our expertness, you know, and oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Um, I would like to say too, that I'm guilty of speaking with that expertness and that, and that confidence. I started teaching classes on my own. I thought that uh, teacher training was bullshit because I'm like, you want, me to, you want me to pay how much money to just read from a manual <laughs> and, and teach a class. And so um, I rebelled against that and started teaching classes in high school. I taught at women's conferences and I can say that I'm guilty of speaking from that expert confidence place. And I know that part of it is realizing, okay, I might've I might been a victim of this system, however, I'm going to see how I perpetuated it and how I might've also caused harm. And I'm, you know, like, I'm not too scared to, to look at that. And I'm not, I can't feel guilt and shame of that forever, but I have to be real with myself. <laughs> get honest. You gotta get honest. Yeah. It's so important. I am also guilty of that. You know, there's no way I think to be a part of the community kundalini lifestyle and not perpetuate this which is why i innately say it's infused in predatory patterns mm -hmm. even if we're well-intentioned and not wanting to pass that on right um mm -hmm. i agree with you I, I agree that i also passed it on simple things that i didn't know i was doing like somebody came to me who had googled the the lawsuit with you know kate felton premka and and pamela and you know, this was in 1985, ladies and gentlemen. So it was very much online. I didn't know I was trained to not look at it. Of course, I had heard it around, but I had never read it. When I read, and I didn't read it when this woman brought it to me, I I, I just acknowledged her pain of, of and acknowledged that it's probably true, you know, but I didn't read it enough to be able to be like, he sadistically abused this woman who was a young person child in our community you know mm -hmm. and you know Pamela was the added thing but you know Kate Feltz is what killed me when I actually looked at that you know things that you know formulas stolen stuff I had remembered you know oriental beauty secrets you know these were facial products that you know got sold throughout the community but more than that when she was violently raped the fact that this has been in public space you know and then any rhetoric story got created for us not to look at it that was a hard one for me um and as a teacher I'm going back to the teacher thing mm -hmm. I would talk so confidently about how the nervous system works <laughs> <laughs> I just and I laugh now but this is no laughing matter folks like hey. this is a really big deal in kundalini yoga right now and it's probably one of the biggest things that drives me forward to move these conversations out because 
you know, from a trauma-informed perspective, there are so many aspects to learning to tune in and pay attention to what my nervous system is actually doing, what biochemically is actually happening from a CPTSD perspective that I'm like you, I didn't have that language before two years ago. But when I taught Kundalini yoga, man, I was like, this is how the nervous system works. Let me explain it. Ah, you know, and I was, I was clear, you know, and I'm not the only one, you know, we all learn this masterful energetic projection as a part of what these teachings offer, which is why we're talking ethos here, right? Because it's, it's not just, but the yoga made me feel good. Okay. But did it, you actually have to take some time to stop doing it to actually notice what's actually taking place and anyway mm -hmm. i i just i can't agree more about this this expert thing and the ways that we pretend to be mm -hmm. experts on things um because we're having an uplifting experience and somehow we're just we're parroting information so if that information has never actually been validated and we're parroting on we become a part of that predatory patterns passing onward even if we're well-intentioned. It's impact over intention. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's maybe only like two more things that I, I really want to touch on. Um, one of it is the homophobia that's ingrained in the teachings. Um, being from Utah, I'm from a very homophobic place. Um, I came out as bi in high school the meanest things were said to me. Um, my experience as a bi person has been very odd um, from gay and straight people, but I'm used to hearing homophobic rhetoric. And so I couldn't always identify it sometimes within Kundalini yoga until my gay friends attended solstice and were like, whoa, like we feel really singled out and attacked. <laughs> and, um, and that also, that I started getting keen to it, like, oh yeah, it is, it is taught very like male, female, male, female, like this is the way, you know? So, um, okay, so not only is it <laughs> appropriation and racism, it's very homophobic as well, <laughs> right? Um, at the and, core, at the core, not at yeah. the periphery, you know, at the core, yeah. which is really important to distinguish. Yeah, right. Because yeah, a surface level, you want to make it look like everybody's welcome. No, you just want to indoctrinate as many people as you can. Like, let's not beat around the bush. <laughs> um, and and then I guess kind of jumping ahead, the the maybe the last thing I really want to touch on is um, Pamela's book coming out. And so that was like right before quarantine. Um, my friend who was the one driving me to yoga at 4 a.m. told me about it, how she had just read it. Yeah. They're was out. she practicing at this time? Was no, she still out? Okay, she was done. Okay, they're okay. out. My yoga teacher, he's out. Like, you know, um, and so she told me about it and she was like, you have to read it. So I was on like a bus from Virginia to New York and I just devoured it. Um, it was really validating of my experiences within the community with some of the men in the community um, and to already what I know to be true from what I had found online. And to see the response 
again, as an abuse survivor, was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot um, because that's also been my experience coming out about my abuse. I remember my abuser's friends just being like, there's no way that's true. You're a crackhead. <laughs> like, you're, you're totally making it up. And, and this is also after my, my abuser died. And so like, how could you speak ill of the dead? Right? Like, why weren't, why wasn't in the same parallel of YB and and this other person, like, why didn't you speak on this when he was still alive? He didn't get a chance to speak for himself. (laughs) You know, um, so I also, I just want to speak to anybody who had been through abuse, watching the, watching people react was re-traumatizing and not believe it and be like, no, like I'm still hardcore doing this. I don't believe you. You're making up this bullshit. Um, that was a lot. (laughs) It is. It really is. Um, even the word allegations over reports of harm, and for that to continue being used over and over again is a form of gaslighting and shaming mm-hmm. uh, abuse victims. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, something is no longer an allegation when somebody says this happened to me, you know, mm-hmm. and when you are a survivor of harm in this capacity, right, you believe survivors It's like you don't have to explain a thing. Got you, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't have enough of this culture. Right. So I totally get what you're saying. It, like the flood around we don't believe you. Why wouldn't you have done this? This doesn't make any sense. Like as if, you know, this isn't a long history of, of normal patterns of behavior uh, towards abuse victims when they come forward, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and yet within this conscious community, this level of sort, I could only imagine how re-traumatizing it was. Right. Yeah. And you know, how we respond to abuse really does matter. We like to think we're having our singular experience, our little life. We don't affect others. No, how we respond to abuse, it matters. How we respond to appropriation, it matters. You know, how we respond to, you know, racism or homophobia, these things matter, right? And to do it in the silent interior of our own experience is no longer okay because it means we're passing on that predatory behavior through silence through Hmm. complicity of not doing anything. And I feel like 3HO is like a master's program in that. I agree. All you have to, you want to learn how to stay silent and to see abuses in plain sight and not pay attention and not Mm -hmm. have any idea that you saw what you saw. Mm -hmm. Come on over, you know, we can give you a master's degree at that. Yeah, which is very much, I feel like in line with, the overall mindset where I'm from. Mm. We're, we're taught politeness, kindness, not no confrontation. And so a lot of abuse happens, but we're going to look this way. And the training that I received here on kindness and politeness allowed so much harm in my life because I wasn't taught boundaries. Yes. I wasn't taught how to identify red flags and, and, and behaviors that weren't okay. That's right. Yeah. And if anything, we're taught to tolerate violations because our body doesn't belong to us or our voice Mm -hmm. or our no doesn't matter or whatever it is. And when that's taught at a very early setting, you don't even know what agency is. You don't even Mm -hmm. know that 
this belongs to me, you know, because those that caretake or, or our protectors, were, they're teaching us basic protection, which leads me to, to, to cover the point that you had mentioned around when you have a teacher or a healer, there's kind of the standard uh, of like, this is what you have to measure up to, right? And, and we unconsciously do this because these are people in authority. So institutions hold that level of quote expectation, teachers, you know, anybody in a particular level of, of, of authority where we look to them for guidance, a pastor, for instance, a minister, for instance, and only in the last two years through doing group therapy, um, did I learn that there is this terminology called betrayal trauma mm. and betrayal trauma really helped me context the extent to the violation that I feel in my body regularly around those that are supposed to guide us actually violated us. And so the enmeshment here is there's so much of a personal story, like yours, your story or my story, but within that is this institutional framework and the institution itself has set itself up to be our protector. These mm -hmm. teachings are supposed to blank, 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 okay? And your yoga teacher is supposed to do blank, 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 right? There's the oath. And, you know, they, again, all the rhetoric that sets this person up for the position. And so we don't come up with that by accident, right? It's it, This is how systems and structures are set up. So when we get violated in these places, betrayal trauma, and you can look this up. There's a woman who coined this and there's a whole, all listeners, I encourage you to do this because it's a whole academic world around this whole concept of betrayal trauma and what it does in our system, the, the, the complete convolution where yes becomes no and no becomes yes. Left becomes right and right becomes left. You know, it's, it's a twist. And I feel like anybody who's practiced Kundalini yoga can understand that convoluted twist. It's so convoluted because you've had real experiences in your own experience that, you know, shifted and you had real enmeshment of violations that were real, but couldn't be pinpointed. And there's all the things in between. Um, so whether it's YB, you know, we experienced YB betrayal trauma, we experienced institutional trauma, but also directly from our teachers, a lot of us that grew up directly from our parents. And this helps to context why we can't trust because the, our protectors didn't protect us, mm -hmm. you know, and anybody was there and anything goes. And then, so we, we don't know that there's such things as what safety means, you know, I, I didn't have an, I didn't know, I didn't know what safety means. You know, when you grow up in an identity, I'm 45 years old, learning, relearning safety for the first time. Like what the hell? Mm -hmm. But you don't know that your meaning of safety means violation. Because if you grew up learning safety means violation, yep. you just keep letting yourself be violated because that's yep. actually the pattern that's more normal and you yeah. call it safety. Yeah. And a, and a healthy behavior is very unnerving. Exactly. It's unnerving. Or boring. boring. Yes. Yeah. Good one. It, or can produce a, a fear state because mm -hmm. it's so different. Mm -hmm. It's actual care, right? It's actual safety, but mm -hmm. your system is discombobulated. So it can't recognize that. Yep. Yeah. It's real trauma. That's a new term for me. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It hit hard for me. And there were so many interesting terminologies, but I forget the woman's name, but 
you know, she coined it and wrote a whole book and there's lots of stems for us all to kind of like look at because there's nobody that's been a part of 3HO that hasn't experienced betrayal trauma. You can't experience spiritual abuse without having betrayal trauma. And then each of us had individual abuses that, you know, only added to that. Um, but specifically, you know, what concerns me about the carrying on with Kundalini yoga and the healer rhetoric is this concept that there is an authority given to a healer. So a cautious, somebody reads your Akashic records, somebody can read, you know, blah, blah, blah. Let me, let me balance your chakras for you. Mm. And, you know, who doesn't want to fucking feel balanced, you know, but, uh, you know, like somebody couldn't tell me that without me, like puke emojiing to them. Like, uh, mm. please don't, please don't talk to me about healing balancing chakras. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it happens all around us. You don't even have to be in a kundalini environment for this to be like happening. And so, yeah, yeah. exactly. And also it's 2022. It's time to give back the practices and spiritual teachings that aren't ours as white people. Yes. Yes. Just stop it. You know, stop <laughs> the taking the name, stop, you know, if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to episode 39, where I break down some real serious appropriation and, and just theft that is built into, you know, the, the pathway of becoming a Kundalini Yogi. And, and these practices aren't ours, you know, <laughs> they are not. And it doesn't yep. mean we can't celebrate and appreciate them, but we don't have to emulate them and, and assume mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And then call them something else and then act superior because of our, our ultimate discipline towards them. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The twist is sick. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You said it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so bothersome, but once again, you know, it's like, I've been deprogramming this stuff since I was 15, I guess, but it was till two years ago that I fully understood the extent of the horrible abusive appropriation of the last name Kalsa and Karin Singh and much less the names we were given weren't even rooted in actually Sikh history and they were like you know like no nobody gets guru something names and yet how many bazillion guru something names have been distributed through the 3HO community and yeah. you know to again unwrangle these things are not easy yeah but we got to do it we got to do this as white people <laughs> I was just going to Gudwara at Solstice because I wanted the Prashad because it was the only sweet thing there and I was dying for something sweet like that's like going to take Holy Communion and here I am like no for the wafer <laughs> what is wrong with me oh no 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 just just know that as children I remember being I remember being at, at uh, uh, ladies camp maybe at nine and we would go to the little mini Gurdwara just to get Prashad. So we'd go sit in there for like two minutes and then we'd get Prashad and then we'd sit and then we'd leave and then we'd sit there for another two minutes and then we'd get another thing of Prashad. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. I'm not the only one, but you can't feel bad. The only sweet thing I'm like, give me some flour and honey and butter. I need yeah. some calories. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I feel like I've I've mostly I've touched on pretty much everything I want to touch on. So unless you have any other questions for me, I feel 
pretty good. Um, I, I just feel like, um, I feel like you covered so much. Um, I want to, I want to just highlight one more thing that you said that I thought was just astounding is the, the diagnosing of self and others. And once again, it's just, it's so easy to kind of brush over into what practices you want to keep and not really tune into just how discombobulating some of these teachings really are to our somatic nervous system experience, a real one, not the one that YB told us we're having. Mm -hmm. And so this diagnosing of self and others and the fact that every Kriya has a solution to something, every emotion, every practice, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, part of my deprogramming was teaching Kundalini yoga so that I could start like really facing between like 2012 to 2016, as I was teaching, I was facing my cognitive dissonance. So I would watch myself say stuff and then I'd be like, hmm. And, and this is my inner process. I wasn't sharing this with others, but it is really quite intentionally why I was teaching. And this is how I noticed myself being like very definitive on things. And I'd be like, oh, how interesting. But one of them was, I remember distinctly thinking how amazing it is that we don't have to think that we can just choose a Kriya, you know? And, and it was like, yeah, you know, you don't think you just choose a Kriya and then you get the result. It's like a formula. It's like a cake, you know, and you mm -hmm. put it in and you can have the same ingredients. You could have flour and you could have eggs. You could have, da -da -da -da, but if you put different amounts of it, Sometimes you get a crepe, sometimes you get a cake, sometimes you get it. And I would give all these amazing, great analogies that only enhanced this idea of the Kriya being such a wonderful thing. But it was only in the last couple of years that I was being able to say, did I, did I just hear what I said? This is wonderful because you don't have to think. And, and, and so it's only when we really like start pulling apart that enmeshed self that is so certain mm -hmm. that we let ourselves not be certain that we can soften and start tuning into what is actually happening. Like in your story just makes so much sense to me around that the way that you started paying attention in pieces, you know, you're, you had an experience and you knew, huh, that, that doesn't seem right. So then you moved on and just different things. And that these were moments of being able to wake up but you didn't wake up and then just decide to do it in your way or teach onward because you're making money it was like for you you really understood the drinking a little bit of poison in this glass it doesn't matter if it's just a little bit of poison there's poison in the glass and so that's what i hear when you speak to appropriation when you speak to the abuse and the re-traumatization being a survivor you know food or survivor of sexual assault or survivor of growing up in a overly religious small town, you know, like all these things are real to people's real experience that allows us to justify and validate why we're getting what we're getting from a place that's abusive, mm -hmm. but none of them are good reasons to stay enmeshed yep. and your experience belongs to you always. And I feel like your voice gives us that courage that it is possible to know that there's aspects to why the path was good and why it wasn't simultaneously and they can both be true, but it doesn't mean you carry on appropriating or carry on the predatory formula just because you're in the figuring it out process. Yep, exactly. As Maya Angelou said, when you know better, you do better. <laughs> hmm. You have wow. to really live that. We have to live that. We really do. And 
So I, I just thank you. I thank you for your clarity. I thank you for your willingness to be vulnerable um, with all your, you know, your personal struggles. And I know what it's like to speak publicly on CPTSD. And, you know, I get blank stares at me all the time. And I also get well-meaning people kind of projecting onto me that I should really just stay silent about such things. And I could just think positive. Yeah. Or they reach out um, and without asking, they share their own trauma with you, which I would just like to encourage people, don't reach out to me with your trauma stories <laughs> or unload on me because I've shared and have been vulnerable. If you want to ask, you know, ask first um, because it can be re-traumatizing. <laughs> yeah, and that you're not a toilet for other people's shit and you're not their therapist. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's really an important thing. It's like, take it in and, and relate it to your own experience, but it isn't, we don't have to bond through shared violation. Mm-hmm. You know, you can just acknowledge, thank you for being vulnerable. It meant a lot for you to express your story. Like that's a beautiful reach out to a survivor that's courageous and speaking out, but you don't have to then go into your violation stories because A, what you just did was very hard and you're not the recipient. Like ask for consent. Is it okay if I share my story with you? Do you have space for me to share my experience? And you're giving this person space to say no. No, I mm-hmm. don't. I don't. But but thank you for asking. Yeah. So thank you for that. It's it's a it's a subtle art of really teaching people how to healthily engage because I don't mm-hmm. think we learned this. I know for me. I didn't learn how to not give opinions when somebody shared really important things. I thought, you know, I didn't know I was doing that out of a way to avoid my own vulnerability and giving unsolicited advice. It took a long time for me to pull back. And I'm sure I still mess that up. But same thing with we share a trauma with a trauma. Oh, somebody shared that. Oh, when I was young, I got violated like this. This doesn't help, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'll say that to listeners with me too. This is not a place that you come to do therapy with me. I'm not a therapist. So don't come here to tell your story and then find yourself frozen with me because that's not helpful for you or me. And what it does is it re-traumatizes me. And I'm not here for that. (laughs) What I'm here for is to give you a platform to tell your story because your story matters. And by listening to your courageous story, other people can identify and, and come closer home to themselves. What I've noticed some people do is they've had such impact by listening to these stories that they feel a level of closeness to me that I obviously don't have to them because I don't know them. Mm-hmm. They listen to me every day or every episode. So they feel a camaraderie or closeness and might I say a safety, mm-hmm. a sense of safety, right? And not only has that happened where people come and quote, tell their story, but they're so frozen through the whole thing. They're not really telling their story. They're making me do therapy with them, which again, traumatizing. But the other piece of that is that doing that isn't necessarily supporting your process, right? You need to find a therapist and work with your therapist to actually locate yourself, you know? And this space is helpful because telling our story can be a part of our healing, but in and of itself, it is not a place of healing. 
It's not a place of therapy. And mm-hmm. I feel like you told your story in a way that that really highlights. Yeah. Please. And please something that we um, spoke on, we've tried to schedule this before and Guru Nishan asked for a bio. I couldn't bring myself to write a bio and I kept putting it off and it was this like emotional, mental stress until I realized I'm not ready to actually share yet. <laughs> and I, I don't want to go on there, you know, on here and just be doing whatever, like, wait, no, like I'm not ready. Let me be gentle with myself and give myself time to, 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 to feel it out. And part of coming out of a cult, at least for myself, is learning how to trust your own intuition and your gut again and being like, okay, I'm going to trust that I know I'm not ready yet, but I'll know when I am ready. And, yes. and so when it was a yes, it was a very clear, yes, it's time to share your story. Yes. Well said. So listeners, I hope you take that in. Um, I appreciate that this space is supportive for you. I get a lot of great feedback that it is that a lot of people's trauma healing process has been so supported by these episodes. And that's really the point. Um, And I want to keep it that space. And I'm getting better at being able to detect like, oh, no, that 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 this person's not ready. And that's a good indicator. If you can't write, you know, a five sentence bio and send it my way that kind of sums up your decade or four decades or whatever, you just might not be ready. And it's just okay. You know, keep listening, keep learning to trust yourself, get yourself a therapist, especially if you're in that first gen group, get yourself a therapist, adult, parents, people, but everybody, every one of us need a therapist. Um, But I can't say it enough. Don't keep carrying on this stuff without really starting to really, um, get new terminology around what this stuff is, because I promise you so much of what we learned about the nervous system is not trauma-informed. It's just not. Mm -hmm. It's actually teaching us to override our natural instincts and um, actually to to perfect frozen states. Yeah. And that ain't good, folks, from a trauma-informed perspective. Frozen states means frozen. (laughs) So- Man, I just want to say thank you so much, Goldie. Beautiful. You want to yes. introduce us to your song and why you chose it? Sure. So I'm an artist. My artist name is Bridges, B-R-Y-D-G-S. And I released a song. It's called Smoke. And it's about my own personal abuse and trauma. And it kind of runs through, you know, like family not knowing what to do, Um People think that like they can just do whatever they can or want to me, you know, and and then coping mechanisms from there. So the chorus is like, this is why I smoke. <laughs> just like trying, <laughs> trying, trying to cope with everything that's happening around me. Um, the end of the song, if you get a chance to listen to the whole song, is some of my favorite because it's the uplifting part of like, no, like I'm gonna be okay. And I can say now after sharing everything that I've been through in my life, um, I'm in a great place because I've, I've found the right resources for me, the right healing, the right therapist, and really have done the work to get on the other side of the hard things that I've been through. And when you're in it, sometimes it does not feel like the other side even exists. It seems like some unattainable place. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's my, beautiful. 
Well, I'm so excited to hear that this is your music. So that's even more <laughs> exciting. And um, we will listen to it. And because we have copyright right here before us. Um, but what I'll also say is I'm going to put the link in the show notes so that people have access to listening to it um, directly in full as well. So here we go. Let's begin. Try not to cry like my brothers I don't know why we stop talking to each other Maybe a joke and maybe a laugh But you don't know about my past I write it all down cause it's stuck in my throat I fight my pain and that's why I smoke That's why I smoke Got me straight in the ghost with Scooby's gang from metal now. Imposter syndrome set the tone. Home is too afraid to doubt. Make signals ain't a maiden call. Have to put my feathers down. Winging my intentions. Tuck my talent the commitment. Victim to my own standards. Trying to live up to my fiction. Bookmark here. No our conversations mind enriching. But is that enough when things progress and you won't find the riches? Wisdom in my lip. Twitter therapist is spilling tea. Self-sabotage what I'm best at. Clamoring for clarity. Why'd I spread this? Pain. Make my honeymoon swing where we can build completely real, maintain a honeymoon phase. New way to approach my deficits, affirmations, effigies. Ask the old me, reckoning. I'm overdue for questioning how long it's been. At least I would owe you a long message. Shame my letters here. I hope I didn't send you the wrong message. That's
So no, that was produced by Joshi Soul featuring Rain Raps. Got to give them credit. Yes, please <laughs> do. Wow. Wow. And that was your voice that we were heard. Yep. That. Wow. Yep. I'm like beyond <laughs> in the creativity and the, you know, the <laughs> lyricist that came in. So like, yeah, like shout out to him and the produ production company, all the groups. Mm -hmm. Wow. You are so talented. I'm so <laughs> turned on right now. That was awesome. That was so you. awesome. It was, it was very sensory. You know, I was very like rich and, and the textures and I could taste it. And to mm. me, this is such a hallmark of trauma healing is when we have sensory awareness again. And when you don't have it, you don't know you have it because you think mm -hmm. you're in your body. But when you actually start to relocate and I felt so much, you know, it was just like, ooh, it was very, very body based. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Wow. Wow. So rich. I just feel so honored um, for your your potent voice um, and your willingness to just kind of break through that is my story important enough and and tell it you know because it's it's so important the insights um, the the young lens that you had at that particular time even to hear that there was a push for the 2012 like all that's new to me like that like <laughs> like cr cray cray you know cray cray. Um, but just hearing this, you know, hearing just the ways that one's gets gets pulled in, it's it just been beautiful and very clear and articulate. And I don't often end a podcast where I don't feel like, oh, that was heavy. And I, I don't feel that. I feel like, wow, you've metabolized a lot of your trauma and you're really present with yourself and with your boundaries and with your space. And it's it's refreshing. It's refreshing to have an exchange in that capacity. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been really wonderful to do the podcast with you. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, folks, I want to just say thank you for listening. And this has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. Um, thank you. Uh, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. Uh, once again, if you'd like to contribute to this broadcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com forward slash uncomfortable conversations. And to be a guest on the podcast, shoot me an email at gn at gurunishan.com. Uh, please also rate, review, and uh, share this podcast with a friend. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you on the next episode.